0: hello this is rabbi daniel Karopkin. welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by maimonides or rambam called more or guide for the perplexed this text has been studied for centuries by great scholars jewish and non-jewish alike it seeks to reconcile aristotelian and neoplatonic philosophy with the torah of our people and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas, join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, we are still in the uh, introduction to the uh, to the and we are in the. Um, in the Pines edition, we are on page six. Um, the the fir- first paragraph beginning with the words, this treatise also has a second purpose. And what we were learning last week is that the Rambam wrote that the first primary purpose of the moreh vuchim is to explain terminology that appears in Tanakh that can be either used that, is used, that is meant to be used metaphorically and should not be taken literally, or it is uh, terminology that has dual meanings. And sometimes it's not clear whether it's metaphorical or whether it has dual meanings. We gave an example of the word chai. Sometimes the word chai can mean alive, and sometimes it can mean raw, depending on its usage. Also, the word chai could also be used metaphorically. For example, as Rabbi Yehuda Halevi also says in the Kuzari, when we say that Hashem is living, the living God, Elohim Chaim, well, that doesn't, that's really a borrowed term. That's not meant literally, because God isn't, is neither alive nor dead. He transcends the, the condition of life. But it's used as a term to describe that Hashem is vital And therefore, it's used in a metaphorical sense. So that's the first function. And now he says that this treatise also has a second function or second purpose, namely the explanation of very obscure parables occurring in the books of the prophets, but not explicitly identified there as such. And we're going to see this once again, is that the Rambam's whole shita is that the Torah speaks on multiple levels and the deeper meaning of the text is very often not the surface, is not the face the face value of the text. Hence, an ignorant or heedless individual might think that they possess only an external sense, but no internal one. However, even when one who truly possesses knowledge considers these parables and interprets them according to their external meaning, he too is overtaken by great perplexity. It's not just foolish people that can get confused. Foolish people might take it at face value and say, that's the gospel, whatever it says, even if it leads one to a very overly simplistic uh, conclusion. Uh, nonetheless, that's the way the, 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 the sukkim speak, and we have to accept it at face value. A more intellectual person will be left with perplexity, because after all, this seems to contradict things that I know to be true based on my other studies. But if we explain these parables to him or if we draw attention to their being parables, he will take the right road and be delivered from this perplexity. That is why I've called this treatise the guide of the perplexed. I'm here to clear the path for you. I do not say that this treatise will remove all difficulties for those who understand it. I do, however, say that it will remove most of the difficulties and those of the greatest moment, meaning those that are most pressing to us as human beings who are trying to find our way to figure out what God is. A sensible man thus should not demand of me or hope that when we mention a subject, we shall make a complete exposition of it, or that when we engage in the explanation of the meaning of one of the parables, we shall set forth exhaustively all that is expressed in the parable. Now, Rambam is basically saying, don't expect me to give you an exhaustive explanation of every single time the Torah speaks or the Tanakh speaks in parable or it speaks in metaphor. Now, so therefore, I'm going to be just giving you some examples, I will not exhaust the topic. Now, why why can I not speak exhaustively about this? So the Rambam now gives us two reasons why he cannot speak exhaustively about it. Reason number one is an intelligent man would be unable to do so even by speaking directly to an interlocutor. How then can he put it down in writing without becoming a butt for every ignoramus who, thinking that he has the necessary knowledge, would let fly at him the shafts of his ignorance? So answer number one is, when I'm speaking to you face to face, I can communicate with you much better than when I'm speaking to you in the written word. Even if I was speaking to you face to face, I would not be able to fully exhaust the discussion. So surely don't expect me to do that when I'm not here face to face to defend myself. So obviously the Rambam anticipates that there are going to be people who are not understanding his project, who are going to be critical of it. And the Rambam was not a prophet, but he really knew what was going on in the Jewish world. And he knew that as soon as this book was going to be published, it would become the source of much criticism. And that's what he's really anticipating. So that's the first reason, I just, I simply can't explain everything to you, uh, certainly not in a book. And number two, and this is a more, sort of a much more relevant reason to the subject material at hand. We have already explained in our legal compilations some general propositions concerning the subject and have drawn attention to many themes. Thus we have mentioned, there, now what is he referring to? In our legal compilations, what he's referring to is the Mishnah Torah that I compiled some 20 something years before I write the Mora And in the Mishnah Torah, which we all looked at together at the beginning of this, uh, when we started to embark on Mora and I, I pointed out to you, uh, we mentioned there that the account of the beginning, what do we call that in Hebrew? Masevirashis, <laughs> is identical with natural science or physics. And the account of the chariot with divine science or metaphysics, the act of the chariot is Mysa Merkava. Okay? And have explained the rabbinic saying, the account of the chariot, Mysa Merkava, ought not to be taught even to one man, except if he be wise and able to understand by himself, in which case only the chapter headings may be transmitted to him. So I have a conundrum, says the Rambam. Mysa Merkava may only be taught to one student and only if that student is wise. And when you teach Samer Kava to that wise student, you may only transmit to him the chapter headings, which means literally the sort of like the, the, the titles, but not going into too much depth. Hence, you should not ask of me anything here, anything beyond the chapter headings. So that's one reason why I'm going to be sparse in my language. I can't reveal too much. And even those that are not set down in order or arranged in coherent fashion in these treaties, but rather are scattered and entangled with other subjects that are to be clarified. So you see, like we mentioned in our, when we read Strauss, this is the second point the Ramam says. Number one, I'm going to be sparse. Number two, even the sparse words that I do use are going to be scattered throughout this text in order to make them less accessible to the hamon am to the general public. For my purpose is that the truths be glimpsed and then again be concealed, page seven. So as not to oppose that divine purpose, which one cannot possibly oppose, and which has concealed from the vulgar among the people those truths especially requisite for his apprehension. So basically, I know what I'm doing, says the Rambam. This book may seem disorganized, but it's not. I've deliberately You know what they call that today that's easter eggs you know what that is when they hide things in a video game or uh or a a, a dvd so the rambam says morin is filled with easter eggs it's got chock full of good stuff but i can't put it out there for you to just to be out there on the table i have to conceal it to a certain degree so that it's not accessible to the vulgar as as god has said the secret of the lord is with them that fear him Know that with regard to natural matters as well. So, up until now, I've, into, I've spoken to you about Mysa Merkava, which is the metaphysics, which is very esoteric and has to remain concealed. But even Mysa Veracious, which the Mishnah at least concedes that you can teach to two students at a time, it is impossible to give a clear exposition when teaching some of their principles as they are. For you know the saying of the sages, Chazal, that the account of the beginning ought not not to be taught in the presence of two men or more than two men now if someone explained all these matters in a book he in effect would be teaching them to thousands of men hence these matters too occur in parables in the books of prophecy so the sages may their memory be blessed following the trail of these books likewise have spoken of them in riddles and parables for there is a close connection between these matters in the divine science and they too are secrets of that divine science and so essentially what the rambam is saying is that Mice of also contains very esoteric material. Why? Because by its very definition, it deals with how God, who transcends the physical four-dimensional universe of reality, is able to in some way connect with it and brought it into existence. We therefore have to discuss matters that have to do with things that go outside of time and space. Very esoteric ideas, very difficult ideas for the human mind to process, and certainly uh, very easily misinterpreted if they are uh, read and digested by someone who is not yet prepared for those kinds of discussions. And therefore, I can't get into that either. And it, notice that he says that's why the Nevi'im were deliberately vague about them. In other words, when we read Mysa Beratius in the Chumash and we read about how God created the world in six days. And we talk about all the things that happened on the six days. According to the Rambam, it didn't happen exactly that way. The Torah is speaking in metaphor because it needs to deliberately conceal what actually happened. It's not speaking falsehood. In, the language is true, but it need, needs to be applied to what really happened. It's almost encoded, it's almost encoded yes. You should not think that these great secrets are fully and completely known. And by the way, and he says, and the sages also spoke in riddle. They spoke in a concealed fashion. You should not think that these great secrets are fully and completely known to anyone among us. They are not. And this is what the Rambam now has to next point out. One of the, the third reasons, so to speak, that I'm going to be concealing some of these things is because they're not totally clear to me either, and even to people who are far greater than me they were not clear, and now he's going to explain why. He says, these kinds of ideas are very difficult for the human mind, even a very advanced human mind, to process, and therefore even trying to just explain what I do know is in itself difficult. Sometimes truth flashes out to us so that we think that it is day, and then matter and habit, in their various forms conceal it so that we find ourselves again in an obscure night almost as we were at first. So here he's talking about the prophetic experience where a person has an, an, he compares that to a bolt of lightning in the middle of the night. You will sometimes get a flash of lightning so that it seems like you have complete illumination on a topic, but it's only momentary. And then as quickly as it came, it is gone. We are like someone in a very dark night over whom lightning flashes time and time again. That's what a prophet is, who prophesies regularly. Among us there is one for whom the lightning flashes time and time again, so that he is always, as it were, in unceasing light. Thus night appears to him as day. That is the degree of the great one among the prophets to whom it was said, but as far as you stand, you here by me, and of whom it was said that the skin of his face sent forth beams and so on. So he's referring to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu's level of prophecy was so superior that it was like a person who is in the middle of the night, but is there's a constant barrage of lightning flashes, so that there is no interruption of the light. That's what Moshe's Navua was about, and that's why Chazal called it the Asbaklarya <laughs> Hameira, the clear lens of prophecy, because it was constant and incessant. Among them there is one to whom the lightning flashes only once in the whole of his night and that is the rank of those of whom it is said they prophesied but they did so no more that's a regular prophet that they will only have one let's say once in a while and in this example only once in their lifetime a flash of lightning sometimes you could have a prophecy only once in your entire life and who is referring to is eldad and medad where the torah says in parasha that eldad and medad had a momentary one-time prophecy because they were receiving some kind of uh, shefa, some kind of uh, divine spillover from Moshe Rabbeinu. There are others between whose lightning flashes there are greater or shorter intervals. And then you have all the prophets, Yecheskel, Yeshayah, Yirmiyah, et cetera, who are all in between Moshe Rabbeinu and Eldad and Medad. Moshe's prophecy was incessant. Eldad and Medad's was a one-time lifetime experience. And then you have other neviim historically who have, who have had other different kinds of, or, of prophecy with different intervals of frequency. Mm-hmm. Thereafter comes he who does not attain a degree in which his darkness is illuminated by any lightning flash. And now the Rambam is going to describe his own level, which is a person who doesn't see the <laughs> lightning at all. But there's some kind of illumination in the night, but it's indirect. He's referring to some level of ruach hakodesh. kodesh or some kind of divine flash, but it's not visible as lightning. It's less clear. Mm-hmm. And even the small light that shines over us is not always there, but flashes and is hit it again as if it were the flaming sword which turns every way. That's referring to the Lahatakher of Hamita Peches, the flashing sword at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. One of the Meforsham, the Narboni, explains that the reason why the Rambam chose this particular example of the flashing sword which only occasionally flashes this vague light is because just like at the entrance of the garden of eden trespass was forbidden so too even though i have these flashes of light of flashes of inspiration i feel this sense of i need to stand at the entrance of the garden and block trespassers from coming in Mm -hmm. it is in accord with these states that the degree degrees of the perfect vary as for those who never even once see a light, but grope about in their night, of them it is said, they know that they know not, neither do they understand, they go about in darkness. So the truth is, the truth, in spite of the strength of its manifestation, is entirely hidden from them, as is said of them, and now men see not the light which is bright in the skies, they are the vulgar among the people. There is, no then, n- there is then no occasion to mention them here in this treatise. I'm not even talking to those people. They may be great scholars. They may be great rabbis, but they have no sense of connection to the information that I'm about to transmit in this treatise. So that's, uh, that's what I wanted to get to so far here. But now what I want to discuss with you is what the Rambam is really referring to. One of the things that the Rambam had made mention of, and he's going to bring this actually back to us uh, in the ensuing paragraphs, is a reference to something that he had written many years ago as a young man. Remember, the Nevuchim is written towards the end of the Rambam's life in the 1190s. When he was a much younger man, we believe when he was in his 20s, he wrote his commentary to the Mishnah. Now, in one place in his Mishnah commentary, The Rambam writes a whole introduction to esoteric matters, which is very reminiscent of this introduction in Moranavuchim. And he's going to refer back to what he wrote in his Mishnah commentary shortly, but I wanted you to see that first. So if you can please take one, pass it around. That's a very good question. And actually, this the question of whether uh intellectual insights are a gift or whether they come as an effort was something that aristotle had undertaken the conclusion of most greek philosophers is that you have to naturally be born with certain intellectual gifts but you have to hone them and develop them if you never develop them then you are you are like unformed matter which is which has the potential but has never turned that potential into actuality. It's the last thing we've seemed a bit of a criticism on part, that are, you know, don't understand this, don't this The Rambam is very critical of his contemporaries. He just he, he says, not only do you not get me, you don't get the truth, you don't get it, okay? But doesn't he, he, the Rambam the Mishnah Torah says that anybody, if they devote themselves, can could, could become another. Can, can attain some level of NAVUA. Um, <coughs> he, 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 he talks about how, <coughs> I mean, you, you, people applying themselves. You know, like, I don't remember his exact text in the laws of NAVUA, but um, the Rambam believes that if a person applies himself with the proper intellectual effort, he can achieve NAVUA, but I'm not sure whether he says that, 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 right. it's, that it's accessible to everyone. That's the only thing that I don't remember. He says that even if you have all the qualities, you might get it, you might not get it, it's still a gift. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. So so there is one aspect of Nevuah and intellectual connection. And we'll talk about that when we get into the idea of the active intellect, which the Rambam will touch upon in the more Nevuchim as well. Um, here, is a, here is a translation. The Rambam's Mishnah commentary was also written in Arabic, so therefore, uh, we'll look at what he says in English. We're coming in in the middle of a very lengthy commentary, <coughs> which is the introduction to um, the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin, which is known as Perak Chalek. That Mishnah opens up with the words, Kol Yisrael Yeshlehem Chelek Le'olam Haba. All of Israel have a portion in the world to come. And the Rambam here, at this point, exposits on certain metaphysical ideas, especially about the immortality of the soul. And this, it is in this place in his Mishnah commentary where he develops the 13 principles of faith because he, the Rambam believes that the key to immortality, the key to olam haba, resides in one's intellect. In other words, if a person properly <coughs> develops their intellect and harbors certain principles of faith, then they will have access to the world to come based on those um, uh, intellectual intellectually held principles, Um, and that's why he developed the 13 principles of faith in relation to the idea of Kol Yisrael having a portion in the world to come. But as an introduction to that, the Rambam says he finds it necessary to make sure that people understand that when Chazal talk about the afterlife, they cannot always be taken literally and there's much that is misunderstood about the whole concept of Yemos HaMashiach and Olam Haba. And this is what prompts him to say how there are different levels of people who study the words of our sages and unfortunately don't understand them properly. Let's take a look. And it is from that which you must know that with regards to the words of the sages, may their memory be blessed, people are divided into three groups. There are three different kinds of Jews who study the words of Chazal, The first group, and it is most of what I have seen, and you talk about Paul, you talk about being critical of his contemporaries, take a look. It is most of what I have seen, and of the compositions that I have seen, and of what I have heard about, believes them according to their simple meaning. In other words, when a person reads, and he's referring to Agadeta, he's referring to the homily that is contained in Torah Al Peh, and does not reason that they have any sort of esoteric meaning. For them, the impossible things must correspond to reality. So, if the Gemara talks about a giant bird that came from the sky and uh, and and uh, you know cloud, covered the entire sky and made it completely dark, or if they talk about a huge fish that was the size of an island, you know that in in uh, Bava Basra, the seventh chapter. However, they do this as a result. They they take these people take these homilies literally. They do this as a result of their not understanding wisdom. They are far from the sciences, and they do not have wholeness so that they be aroused on their own, and they did not find someone to arouse them. These people hold that the sages, may their memory be blessed, only intended in all of their straight and sweet words what this group understood according to their intellect from them, and that they are according to their simple meaning, and even though that which appears in some of their words is repulsive, and that which pushes the intellect away to the point that if it would be recounted to the unlettered and all the more so to the wise, they would wonder in their pondering over them and say, how is it possible that there is someone in the world that thinks like this or believes that this is a correct belief, all the more so that it is good in their eyes? In other words, how could any intelligent person actually believe this? There are some types of agadata that you read in the Gemara and in Midrash and you say to yourself if you're going to take it at face value, how can a rational person believe this, okay? And one should be pained about the foolishness of this group of simple-minded people because according to their opinion, they are honoring and raising the sages. They think, oh, you must take their words literally. If Chazal said it, it is the gospel truth, no, no matter its illogic. And we are therefore paying homage and, and showing proper respect to Chazal by not tampering with their words and taking their words literally. But they are, in fact, lowering them to the lowest depths. And they do not understand this. There are people even today who are so simplistic in their approach to Yiddishkeit that they present with a complete distortion. Just recently, one of the, this, a, a certain rabbi who was pl- posted on the internet presumed to interpret the reason why 11 people were murdered in pittsburgh because he believed that by reading the words of the sages you could you could intuit and interpret any situation that happens today and cast judgment on people because of what they did or what they didn't do you know this is what brings dishonor and disgrace to judaism and to the torah so yes Right. So the Rambam in his Mishnah commentary is talking about the words of the sages in particular, because he's addressing issues of the afterlife, which are not addressed in the Torah. The Rambam in the Mora Nevuchim just got through telling us that he's talking about both the words of the prophets and the words of the sages. Both of them are meant to be interpreted esoterically and not always to be taken literally. The Rambam has a whole chapter on the talking donkey in Mora Okay. And as God, may he be blessed, lives, this group destroys the beauty of the Torah and darkens its splendor and makes the Torah of God the opposite of its intention. As God, may he be blessed, said in the perfect Torah, that they should observe all of these statutes and they shall say, this is certainly a wise and understanding people, this great nation. In other words, when people study Torah the correct way and apply it correctly, the world is supposed to look at us and say what a wise and discerning people this is. But unfortunately, that's not what happens. And this group recounts the simple words of the sages, may their memory be blessed, so that when the other nations hear it, they say rak am tipeish ha-am ha-gadol haze. what a foolish and silly people this small nation and the ones that do this the most are the preachers that explain and inform the masses of the people about that which they themselves do not know okay so I guess I'm I'm a preacher so I gotta be careful and were it only that since they did not know and understand that they would be quiet as it is said were it only that you would be silent and it will be considered wisdom for you right In other words, better you should keep your mouth shut right or that they would say we do not understand the intention of the sages in the statement and we don't understand how it is to be explained but instead they think that they understand it and attempt to inform others about it to explain to the people what they understood according to their weak intellects not that which the sages said and they preach at the heads of the people the homilies from tractate brachot and from the chapter entitled chelek which is the chapter that he's introducing and from others according to their simple meanings word for word. What a great dishonor that they bestow upon the Torah. Now let's take a look at the second group. The second group is also numerous, and they are the ones that saw the words of the sages or heard them and understood them according to their simple meanings and thought that the sages did not intend them in anything more than that which is indicated by the simple understanding. So this second group is just like the first group. They look at the words of the sages and say, this is what they meant, this is what they said, this is what they meant, there's nothing deeper than face value. And they come to make them foolish and to disgrace them and to bring ill repute to that to that which has no ill repute. And they mock the words of the sages. So the difference between <coughs> the first group and the second group is, the first group is the, the, the fundamentalists. They say, we believe in God, we believe in Chazal, we believe in Torah Al Peh, And we accept that whatever it is, no matter how outlandish what the, the, the pronouncement is, it must be that's the way it is. No matter how offensive it is to the intellect, that's how it is. The second group takes it at face value, but they are more cynical. And they say, these rabbis don't know what they're talking about. And they come to mock and deride the words of the sages. And they believe that they are more refined in their intellect than the sages, and that they, Peace be upon them that they the sages, were stupid, simple-minded fools regarding all of existence, to the point that they did not grasp matters of wisdom in any way, and most of those that stumble in this error are those with pretence to the medical sciences and those that carry on about the laws of the constellations. now what he's basically saying is these are the intellect in-, in the intelligentsia of our time, whether they be physicians or astronomers, scientists. They think they know better how provincial Jewish texts, Jewish literature is, and how far are they in, uh, uh, from humanity, according to those that are truly wise and philos I'm sorry. Since they are, according to their thinking, understanding, and wise in their own eyes and sharp in philosophers, but how far are they from humanity, according to those who are truly wise and philosophers? Rather, they are more foolish than the first group, and many of them are idiots boy he doesn't pull any punches he's so young as well. yeah yeah and it is an accursed group maybe that you're see, maybe you're sensing the fire in his belly mm. from when he's a young man and it is an accursed group since they question great and lofty people whose wisdom was already made clear to the wise and were these idiots to exert themselves in the sciences to the point that they would know how it is proper to organize and write things in the science of theology and things which are similar to it for the masses and for the wise and they would understand applied philosophy, then they would understand if the sages, may their memory be blessed, were wise or not, and the matter of their words would be elucidated for them. In other words, it is a lack of knowledge on their part that makes them so dismissive of the words of the sages. If they would only study a little bit more, they would see how easily you reconcile the words of Chazal when understood properly and the words of the natural sciences. Now we go to the third group. The third group is as god lives very small to the point that it is not fitting to call them a group at all except in the same way as one says about the sun that it is a species even if it is in fact unique essentially what he's saying is that these people are one of a kind one in a million very rare Uh, and these are the same people to whom the greatness of the sages may they be blessed and the quality of their intellect was made clear from what was found among their words, things that indicate matters that are very true. And even though, in other words, they look at the words of the sages, they're able to pick out their words very, very carefully, sift them, distill them, and come to a true understanding of what chazal mean. And even though these things are few and scattered in different places in their compositions, they indicate their wholeness and that they grasp the truth and that the impossibility of the impossible and the necessity of that which exists was also clear to them. The members of the third group knew that the sages, peace upon them, were not saying jokes, and it became established for them that the sages' words have a revealed and a secret meaning. There's an overt, face value meaning, but there's a more esoteric, deeper meaning. And that in everything they said about things that are impossible, they were speaking by way of a riddle and a parable, since this is the way of great wise men. And therefore, the greatest of wise men opened his book by saying in Proverbs to understand the parable and a metaphor, the words of wise men are their riddles. And it is known to the linguist that a riddle is when the matter is intended by it is hidden and not revealed by it. And as it is said in Sefer Shoftim, I will tell you a riddle. Since the words of the sages are all about supernal matters of ultimacy, they must then be riddles and parables. And how can we blame them for writing wisdom in the way of parable and making it appear as lower things of the masses when we see that the wisest of all men did this with the Holy Spirit? I mean Shlomo in Proverbs and in the Song of Songs and in some of Koheles. And why should it be difficult for us to explain their words rationally and to take them out of their simple meaning in order that they fit reason and correspond to the truth? And even if they are holy writings, they themselves explain verses of scripture rationally and take them out of their simple meaning and make them into parables. So here, again, you're seeing the words of Tanakh also are what the function of Chazal is to tell you when the words of the Tanakh are also not to be taken literally. And it is the truth, as we find, that they said to explain the verse in Divrei Hayamim, he smote the two powerful lions of Moab, that it is all a parable. And so, too, that which is stated further in the verse, he descended and smote the lion in the pit as a parable and he gives a number of different examples. But let's go to the end of the paragraph, where it says, if you are from the third group, so that when you see one of their words that intelligence pushes off, you stop and reflect about it, and know that it is a riddle and a parable, and you lay burdened in your heart and occupied by the meaning of the idea in the composition and in its rational meaning, and think to find the intelligent intention in the straight faith, as it states, to find words of desire and written straightly, even words of truth. And if so, look into this book of mine, and it will help you with God's help. In other words, that's who I'm writing this book for, this Mishnah commentary. And therefore, the Rambam writes, this is his introduction to explain how people so rarely understand the true essence of what the afterlife is all about. And the reason why they don't understand it is because when they read about Chazal talking about things like Gehenim, a fire, they take it literally. You know, people will be strung up and punished in different kinds of ways, very graphically depicted in Midrashim. According to the Rambam, this is all metaphor, because the Rambam has a more Aristotelian concept, a more philosophical concept of what afterlife is, which is disembodied (laughs) intellect of the individual. And we're going to get into that. In the Mora Nevuchim. The last thing that I want to see with you is something that the Rambam himself is going to refer to in the Mora Nevuchim, which we'll see next time. But since you have the text here, let's take a look at it. Several paragraphs later, the Rambam says, My intention, and he's, remember, he's writing this as a young man. There's probably a 50 year gap between the time that he wrote the Mishnah commentary and the time that he wrote the Mora Nevuchim. I maybe just, that's just an approximate number. But he says in his Mishnah commentary, this is what has been clarified to me from all their words about this lofty and weighty matter. And I will still write a composition in which I will gather all of the homilies that are found in the Talmud and in other books. And I will elucidate them and analyze them such that they be fitting with the truth of their matters. And I will also give proofs to this from their words. In other words, I have every intention, to the Rambam, on writing a commentary to Shas, to the Agadata, I'm going to write a commentary to all of the areas of homily that appear in Torah Shebaal Peh. That book has never been published. Now, why was it never published? Because the Rambam stopped in the middle of the project. He's going to explain as an old man in More Nebuchim, why he desisted from that project we'll see why and i will reveal which of the homilies are like their simple understanding and which are parables and which were dreams even though they are described in completely straightforward statements as if they were in a waking state and in that composition i will elucidate for you many beliefs and there i will elucidate all of the things of these principles that i have given to you a little here that you extrapolate from them to the others And one should not be exacting with me that in this essay I have somewhat overlooked words and matters about which experts are exacting, since I have overlooked this exactitude to allow for understanding for the one that has no prior education in this lofty matter that not all people grasp. So I've given you a gloss, says the Rambam in this Mishnah commentary in this introduction. But when I write my big book, you're going to get the whole story. That book was never written. What we do have instead of that big book is the Nevuchim. Why did the Rambam shift gears and change the project? That we're going to see next time. We did say earlier he can't do it all. He did say he cannot do it all, similar to what he said here in this Mishnah commentary. Yes, but we'll see why.